0: Cricket ACT acknowledges the Ngunnawal people who are the traditional custodians of the land upon which we meet and play and pay our respects to the elders of the Ngunnawal nation, both past and present. We also value the contribution that other diverse cultures, identities and lifestyles make to our region, which ultimately enhances the richness of our society and cricket community.
1: G'day and welcome back to episode four, a look back on the 100 years of cricket in the ACT. In this episode, we take a look at the period from 1980 to 1995. It was in this period that the Prime Minister's 11 matches made a return, that Jack Fingal scoreboard was relocated from the MCG and erected at Marnica Oval. The first ever women's and men's one day Internationals were played at Marnica Oval during the Cricket World Cups. And the ACT rep side made its first ever overseas tour and a legend of West Indians cricket, Gordon Greenwich, played club cricket in Canberra. All this and more in an action-packed era of cricket in the nation's capital. The structure of grade cricket to commence the 1980s was the same as the last year of the 70s, with 10 clubs, ANU, Western Creek, East Canberra, Ginnandera, South Woden, City, Anne, Woden, Northern Suburbs and Western District all having teams in the four grades. The participation of players had grown from an average of 73 per club in 1973 to an average of 89 players per club in 1981. Two clubs that had declining populations were Northern Suburbs and Woden. It was clear that amalgamation would need to be considered in the next five years. In 1983, the association decided to conduct two separate grade competitions simultaneously a competition of nine by two day matches where clubs played each other once to determine the premiership. A one day competition of five matches was also played to give ACT cricketers experience at playing this format in a view that hopefully in the near future, the ACT would be admitted into the Australian Cricket Board's domestic one day competitions. From 1984, the results of the one day competition counted towards the club championship. Tuggeranong and Darramalan were admitted to the Twilight Competition in 1983. Tuggeranong were then admitted into District Grade Competition in 1984. This coincided with the merger of South Woden and Woden to create the Woden Valley Club, thus keeping the number of clubs in District at 10. Darum Marlin denied entry into district competition in 1984, entered two teams into the Goulburn Association in 1985. But in 1987, Darum Arlen and City reached an informal agreement where Darum Marlin would become responsible for filling City's fourth and fifth grade teams. The trial was successful and in 1988, Darramalan were accepted in all grades of the ACT Cricket Association as part of a composite City Darum Arlen Club. There was to be more change at the end of the 1988-89 season. The association decided to reduce the number of clubs from 10 to 8. City, Durham and Northern Suburbs were amalgamated to form a new Canberra North Darramalan Club, and Eastern Suburbs and Woden Valley were amalgamated to form South Canberra. So between 1979 and 1989, there were four changes to the format of the district competition. Of the teams that were playing in 1978-79, only three, ANU, Coimbeyanne and Western District, remained intact 10 years later. In 1989, a veterans competition was added to the ACT Cricket Association program for players over 35. The matches were 24 overs per side and a twilight competition that started at quarter past four. So which club was dominant from the start of the 80s to the mid-1990s? Without doubt, it was Queen Bean who won seven first grade premierships, eight twilight finals and four premierships in the one day competition that commenced in 1983-84. Despite their premiership success in A grade, they were club champion winners just twice. Western Creek won the most club championships with five. Bob Hawke was elected the 23rd Prime Minister of Australia on March the 11th, 1983. Within two weeks, he started planning with the ACB, the return of the Prime Minister's 11 matches. Despite a few obstacles, Hawke got his wish, with the West Indies taking on his PM's 11 in January 1984. Before a record crowd of 14,484, the PM's 11, led by a brilliant 134 from David Boone, defeated the West Indies by 52 runs. Boone would, 10 months later, make his test debut for Australia against the West Indies. Dennis Lilly, who had retired from Test Cricket three weeks previous, took two for 21 off his 10 overs. The PM's 11 was captained by Kim Hughes and also included Greg Chappell, Jeff Thompson and Dean Jones. The West Indies featured captain Clive Lloyd, Viv Richards, Desmond Haynes, Joel Garner and Michael Holding. It was a great return that delighted Mr Hawke in a post-game chat with Richie Beno
0: to the Prime Minister of Australia who organised the match and to whom I spoke just after the game. Thanks, Richie. It's been a great day. Uh, due to a, a lot of people, but thank you very much. I think uh, over 15,000 people are going home very uh, contented that they've had a good day's cricket. Yes, it uh, all began well. I particularly liked uh, the work of young David Boone, and I saw that all three selectors were over there. I should think it's delighted them as well. Well, it's uh, raised raised very serious questions as to whether Phil Ridings and I should, in fact, take over the future selection of Australian teams, uh, Richie. I promise you I won't... I won't say anything to Alan Davidson and Laurie Storm about that. <laughs> <laughs> but it was a very sensibly chosen side and it was nice to see that uh, Dennis Lilly and Jeff Thompson were able to be brought back in. It was, uh, and didn't uh, they rise to the occasion, particularly Dennis? He, he just doesn't know how not to give of his very, very best. It was a remarkable piece of bowling and uh, as you and I were saying together earlier, it is a pity in a way that he's bowing out after the season because he's now perfected this uh, new style of bowling off a shorter run, cutting the ball both ways. Uh, he's still such a joy to watch running into the wicket too, isn't he? It certainly is. Now, one of the reasons we had such a good match here today, I think, was the quality of the pitch out there. Well, Kim Hughes was saying to me at lunchtime, he, he uh, believes this is easily the best pitch he's played on anywhere in Australia this year. Well, that is terrific. And uh, it, it looked good. It allowed the batsmen to play their shots and gave the bowlers... It was, that's right. I mean, the, well. the ideal of a cricket pitcher was something for both. The bowlers obviously felt there was a bit of life there, but it was coming through quick enough for the uh, batsmen to play their shots. Seriously, it would be marvellous if we could introduce uh, cricket, wouldn't we? Both the Chinese, the Russians and the Americans. And I think we could sort out a lot of problems in the world if we get them playing cricket together. Indeed it would, and uh, we'd be a lot happier if that were the case. Well, that's all from uh, Monica Oval and the Prime Minister's match. It was a tremendous success with over 15,000 people in the end coming into this very, very attractive ground. For the moment, it's good night on behalf of Nine's Wide World
1: of Sports. PM's 11 matches continued on a yearly basis with two games also played against an Aboriginal 11 in January 1988 and 1989. The Aboriginal 11 won both matches. From the match in January 1990, the PM's 11 won six straight matches to November 1994. The 1991 victory was over India, highlighted by two excellent performances from former Canberra juniors, Michael Bevan and Greg Rowell. And an enthusiastic Prime Minister, Bob Hawke, at the coin toss.
2: Hello and welcome to Monica Oval for the Prime Minister's 11 match. The Prime Minister's 11 playing against India. This is the ninth of the PM's matches under the patronage of Bob Hawke. Well, the two teams for this match the PM's 11, as ever, captained by Alan Border. Then we have Matthew Hayden of Queensland, Greg Blewett of South Australia, Michael Bevan of New South Wales, Jamie Siddons recovered from injury, Damien Martin, Tim Zurup, Greg Rowell from Queensland, Shane Warne, the leg spinner from Victoria. Dave Gilbert of Tasmania, Damien Fleming of Victoria, and Ian Garrity of the ACT is the 12th man. For all right, the captains are ready now. They're out in the middle with Bill Laurie. Okay, who's going? Uh, Premier <laughs> Yeah, all right. Going oh. yeah. Tails at it is. Tails it is. Got to bat first. Okay. 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 Alan Border won the toss and elected to bat on a perfect batting pitch. There's 50 for Michael Bevan. He really is a class player and uh, as I said apart from Alan Border I think a class above the, the rest of the young players on show here at Manukau Oval. And well caught. Beautifully caught there by Damian Martin at cover. And that ends uh, Tandilka's innings. So Raoul coming back and doing the job for his skipper.
3: Raoul continues with two for 20.
2: Swing and miss is gone. He got a touch of that. Yes, through to the wicket keeper. Rao strikes again. Shastri out for nine. And young Greg Rao
4: having a very good match. at Monica Oval.
5: That's another wicket to Rao. Manjika
6: making room. In the
2: reward for accuracy as well. He's been very impressive. Number five for Greg Rowell. Very accurate once again. Oh, and that's got to be very close. So he finishes with six. The last ball of his uh, ten over spell, Greg Rowell. And that's an appropriate finish because he bowled accurately all day. The local boy returns and is the hero today, Greg Rowell. Six wickets against a touring team.
1: This episode four of the 100 Years of ACT Cricket is highlighted by some of the greatest ever players to have played in the nation's capital. I caught up with one of these legends, Peter Solway, to comment on a few of them and his own career. During the 80s and 90s, Peter, you played with and against some of the very best players in ACT Cricket, has seen including Greg Irvine, Neil Bolger and a young Michael Bevan. Let's start with Greg Irvine. Yeah, Greg, uh, Western Creek player, played the act as well played many years with and against
5: greg he was a fantastic all-rounder wonderful competitor and and a guy that loved to uh, move the game forward so won a lot of games you know for the act and uh batting batting in the middle order he he wanted to dominate early so he'd play some big shots or try and try and dominate and put his sort of um print on, on how he wanted to play his innings so he'd always be looking to move the game forward Play a couple of big shots and uh, really set the sort of tone, and uh, and and oppositions, so I guess, were on the back foot right from the start against him. So, a handy bowler too. Look, he, he was he was better than handy. He um, Greg was a, a tall man and uh, came from a from a good height, um, so he was difficult to drive. He always hit a hit a good length, went sort of both ways, um, sort of nipped him in off the deck, and um, his control was brilliant. I wouldn't call him, you know fast he wasn't a fast bowler but he was a medium pace that um, had fantastic control and and had some good weapons that you know were really difficult to play and, and I remember one his outstanding performance I guess in his bowling career was uh, was a game against Pakistan in, in a warm-up game the year that they won their World Cup I think he bowled 10 overs I don't know the figures but I know it was less than 10 runs he went for off his 10 overs and one or two of them might have been a wide and Took two or three or four wickets, something like that. The, the figures were ridiculous, and they were against uh, Imran Khan, and and he just had it on a string this day. I, I remember he used to say, you know, when the wind blew from a certain, when there was a nice breeze from a certain direction, that 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 was right in in his wheelhouse, you know. And and I think this day it was uh, just. The right coming from the right direction, and um, he just had it on a string.
1: Well, staying talking about legends, there's none bigger than Neil Bulger, and a, a man you knew very well, Peter, and, and played alongside.
5: Bulger, uh, look, there was none better. I had the. Uh, the honour of, of playing with Bulge uh, at my local club. So when I was coming up through the juniors, Bulge was doing his thing in first grade for Queembeon and um, coming into first grade and having Bulge there and, uh, you know, there was a few a few young fellows. It was just an awesome experience and we look back now and think, geez, how lucky we were to um, to have seen Neil play the game at, at his peak. Fantastic all-rounder like Greg, just could do it all, you know. It was um,
1: yeah, and Peter, for you personally, in your partnership with Neil really continues on forever because you've got a scoreboard named after you at Freebody Oval, and of course, the ground was named after Neil Bolger. That must be a lovely thing to take with you.
5: Oh, look, absolutely! And uh, as you know, Neil passed uh, recently, and we caught up with a lot of a lot of our mates um, at his funeral, and. Um, the recollections of, and uh, memories of, of Neil, um, that they were wonderful. They'll never be forgotten at our club. Like you said, there's a number of awards named after Neil as well, and he's just a legend at our club. And um, yeah, wonderful memories.
1: Another one. What were your first impressions of a young Michael Bevan? <laughs> yeah, look, Michael again had the had the pleasure of playing with Michael in when he first started playing some
5: um, ACT games, some second eleven games, and um, I remember him like classy left-hand batter, and um, he was a determined and uh, intense young man, you know. He, he was on a mission. He, mm. he had a goal to, um, you know, to play good, you know, the best he could and, and go places, and, and that's exactly what he did. And I remember him, I think one of his first innings was at Al- the Albert Ground in Victoria against the Victorian 2nd eleven, and uh, they had a decent attack as well, I think maybe led by James Sutherland from memory. We were in some trouble up the top, and uh and Bevan and might have been um, Johnny Bull in the middle both made runs and, and, and got us out of a of, of the mire. So um, I, I think his, his next second 11 game was against, against the WA boys and, uh, again, it grilled off another 100. And, and after seeing those two innings, as we knew, there was something uh, special about this guy. And um, as it turned out, um, yeah, he went on and played some cricket for Australia.
1: Yeah, and Peter, of course, in – Your career, mate, which is still going um, at at, uh, at a veterans level and a few lower-grade levels, but a record that is just incredible. One that really stands out. I'll be interested to get your thoughts on. I'll go back to March 1990, and you scored 339 against ANU or 467 deliveries. Didn't give a chance. It's still a record in ACT first grade. What are your memories of that, mate, apart from seeing them like watermelons? Look, my memories are –
5: I think it was it was the last game of the season, and um, how it turned out, we were minor premiers, and um, I think we had didn't well had, hadn't lost too many games that season, so we couldn't be, couldn't be overthrown as minor premiers, and um, so I remember the ground was immaculate as well. We we had this fixture called called the Town versus Gown, and it was a game right at the end of the season, and I, and I think the game might have been on the next day, so the ground was done up with marquees around it. You know, and the outfield was was magnificent. The good flat wicket all set up for this next day. So um, I remember thinking, well, is it, this looks all right. I might try to have a bat here for a while. And like it was a two-day game. I reckon I was 140 not out overnight. So we came back the next week, I reckon. And um, given that we we can't get tossed for first spot, we'd um, give everyone a bat and uh, keep keep batting through our water, And um, that's what we did. And uh, like, it was a good day. Kept uh, kept going and, yeah, got on to make a few runs. So uh, it was good fun. You had a good net, mate, ahead of the finals. Well, that's it, yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: Pete, what were two or three things you adopted that you made you so successful in your game of cricket, but particularly with your batting? Biggest one looking
5: back is um, it was sort of like a mentality, me against everyone else. So, so that's sort of um, what, what I sort of recall when I um, look back on cricket you know, those sort of years, I, I think I, I put a fairly high price on my wicket as well. When it was my day, it was sort of that mentality again, try and cash in and make it my day, you know. As we know, we have plenty of days where and, – and don't make too many runs. So there was definitely that sort of mentality of it, if it's my day, make the most of it. So um, I, I guess I just enjoyed the taste of the competition and um, – yeah, playing with your mates and trying to um, have a common goal and winning competitions, that, that was um, sort of my motivation, I guess.
1: Peter, who was the bowler or bowlers that you found where you really had to be on your game and you probably rated the best you'd played against in ACT cricket? It's an interesting one
5: this week. There were a lot of good combinations of bowlers uh, that I faced and, and just a, a couple to mine early days, uh, Richard Doan, Eugene, Nick, Simon Swan. For me, we always had good games against East back in the day. And then West, you know, Dave Thornton and Jason Boris were um, a really good combination for West and, and Tugrenong. They had a Evie Keller, Paul Neems, Greg Lemin sort of combination that uh, wreaked havoc around the comp. Back when I first started playing, there was an attack that had a guy called Brett Hannum, uh, Peter Stanek and Simon Overland. And, and I think they were – their attack was awesome for uh, back in the 80s. And there were good spinners around as well in, in Bushy and Graham Bush from West and Kev Flaherty, on. But if I had to pick one uh, in terms of the biggest challenge to face, I, I don't reckon I could go past Kenny McLeod who um, was a West Indian guy that came over and it was great. I played with him actually at ANU when he came over for his last stint. But when he was playing for East back in the day, when he first came over, he was like a feared sort of bowler, and um, there was none, none quicker. I don't, I don't think there's been too many quicker blokes than him around the place. He just had an era where the West Indies had a, you know, just a truckload of quicks. Otherwise, he would have played Test cricket. But there were, and and he wouldn't bowl fast all the time. It would only be generally against Queenie and when they fired him up. But there were a couple of memorable days of uh, playing against Kenny, and the most. Remember for me was, well, there's two actually, at Marnica in the last game, he uh, he was bowling that fast and the keeper was that far back. Our two openers, Michael and Stephen Frost, as he would bowl because he was bowling bounces every second ball, they would run boys. So as soon as he bowled it, they'd run. They could, I've never seen that before and they couldn't do anything about it because the keeper was so far back. The other time I remember playing was at Kingston, again, at Queenie versus um, Eastlake and... I reckon he had three blokes on the boundary fly slips. It's like a deep point, deep backward point, and then one finer because he was bouncing me and I was just trying to um, take him on and hit him over, um, over the slip. So that was good
1: fun. Peter, that's a very good segue into my next question, which is about another West Indian who played club cricket in Canberra in 1990, uh, Gordon Greenwich, who at the time was one of the leading opening batsmen in world cricket. What are your memories of Gordon Greenwich in town?
5: Gordon Greenwich, so – when he came to town and the first game that he was scheduled to play was Queanbeyan versus Norse. So there's a bit of media build-up and there are a fair few people came along to um, to watch. And And it was a game that I didn't play because my sister was getting married That's, and, <laughs> at, at three o'clock. But I remember going to the game for the first two hours before the wedding. Uh, Norse must have won the toss and batted. And you've got all these people rocked up to um, to watch his first Two scoring shots were two fours. Um, I think maybe the, the the flick off the hip and the and the cover drive, and then he uh, I think he nicked up for eight. I think two overs, and then everybody got in the cars and drove off. So <laughs> that was Gordon's first game in uh, in Canberra. My other memory then with Gordon, he he, um, he was selected to play for the ACT, which was fantastic to be able to play play alongside the great man, you know. And um, I clearly clearly remember him um, opening the batting in two games and he made runs and uh, I was batting at three and we had another opener. It might've been Grant Woodbridge, I reckon. And uh, Woody, I think was determined to, uh, to bat with Gordon for as long as he could. And uh, and, and ha- as it turned out, um, he batted for so long. I didn't get to bat with Greenwich because uh, Greenwich was the bloke that got out first time, <laughs> first up. So that um, was my couple of memories of Gordon and, um, Yeah, no, it was wonderful that he played in our competition and, uh, you know, lifted the profile that season.
1: Greg Irvine is an ACT Cricket Hall of Famer and Life member who joined Western Creek in 1979, the club's first season in first grade. His 10 years at Western Creek produced 3,709 runs at 33.41 and 183 wickets at 18.06. In 1989, he transferred to ANU as the club's captain coach. His 10 years at ANU yielded 3,341 first grade runs at an average of 42.3. He is the only player selected in the Prime Minister's 11 while still playing in Canberra. In the match against New Zealand in December 1987, he took five for 42, the first bowler to take five wickets in an innings in the current series of these matches. He has represented New South Wales country against Sri Lanka, India and the West Indies. In 1993, he starred for the Australian country against the West Indies at Newcastle, making 56 and taking three wickets. Five years before, he took four for 49 against Sri Lanka at Manuka Oval, also representing Australian country. Peter Solway played first grade at Queanbeyanne from 1980 to 1993, where he made 5,537 runs. He then moved to ANU for seven seasons, making 3,911 runs. He had two seasons at Eastlake before taking a break and then returning to Queanbeyanne, where he is still playing today. Solway has made the most runs and played in the most premierships in ACT first grade. 270 first-grade games, and 183 times played for the ACT. He is both a life member and a Hall of Fame inductee of ACT Cricket. Solway was named in the Australian Country team for the first 25 years. In 1992, the Australian Country Championships, he made 169 not out against New South Wales and 168 against Victoria. He was selected in the Australian country team to play India in 1986, the Western Australian Shield team in 1989, and was vice captain of the Australian country team which played India in 1992. In that year, he was named New South Wales Country Cricketer of the Year. Solway played for the Prime Minister's Eleven game against South Africa in 1993, alongside the likes of Matty Hayden, Justin Langer and Ricky Ponting. In 2018, Solway captain the Australian over-50 side to the World Cup title in Australia. Neil Bulger was a hard-hitting left-handed batter and left-arm medium pace bowler. He was known at the Queanbeyan district cricket club simply as the legend and has a ground named after him at Freebody Oval. Overall in first grade he played 135 matches scored 3,933 runs at 37.10. He scored 10 centuries in an era where centuries were hard to come by, as well as 14 half centuries. He took 253 wickets in first grade at 16.1. He played for the Queanbeyanne side for 25 seasons and across all grades scored 7,911 runs and took 384 wickets, as well as being part of five premierships. He was selected to play in the Southern New South Wales side against a touring English side at Marnica Roval in 1974. In 1984, Bulger was announced as the 12th man for the first Prime Minister's 11 match of the modern era. Prime Minister Hawke at the time said that Bulger was selected as 12th man for his services to cricket in the ACT. In 1988, an Australian Aboriginal side was selected to tour England. 120 years after the first Aboriginal side toured England. Neil had captained the New South Wales Aboriginal side in the Australian Carnival and was one of the first selected in the Australian side as vice captain for the tour. Michael Bevan started his junior career at Western Creek in the early 80s and finished his career with Australia in 2004. He played in 18 test matches and 232. One day internationals forging a reputation as the finisher. Who will ever forget this moment of Bevan's brilliance against the West Indies at the Sydney Cricket Ground on New Year's Day 1996?
3: It's that first goal! It's 50 for Australia. What an effort! What a stroke! It's Michael Bevan's evening at the Sydney Cricket Ground!
4: What a shot under pressure! You've seen one of the all time great one day innings from a young man who's fought his way back into the Australian side and a full house goes
1: berserk. It was the start of a great first class and international career where he made a century on debut for South Australia. He also toured the West Indies with the Australian Institute of Sport Cricket Academy. Bevan was the first Canberra born male to play international cricket for Australia. As mentioned by Peter Solway, one of the highest profile players in world cricket to play club cricket in ACT was flamboyant West Indian opening batter, Gordon Greenwich, who played for a new club, Canberra, North Durham while still playing test cricket. Greenwich's fee was reputed to be at the time $30,000 plus a car for his four month stint before being ordered home to prepare for the England tour in 1990. His highest score in club cricket was 96 not out but he did make 125 not out for ACT against the Victorian Second Eleven. In November 1980, for the first time in the history of ACT cricket, the local side was to be an ACT team, not a composite team. The match against New Zealand was scheduled for three days. However, rain played havoc, preventing play for just 400 minutes on the first two days and then washed out day three. In January 1981, a two-day match against India attracted a total attendance of 2,650. India declared at six for 302, and then in a stunning reply, the ACT passed the Indian score for the loss of six wickets. Terry Khan, 69, Neil Bolger, 57, and Russell Rogers, 53, led the run chase. In November 1981, the ACT played Pakistan. The visitors declared at six for 200, and then ACT skipper Russell Rogers declared when the locals reached the score. Pakistan batted a second time in an entertaining two hours before stumps. ACT's first overseas tour took place in December 1982 when six matches were played against provincial teams in New Zealand. The cost of the trip was $45,000. It was self-funded by the 15 players and two officials. After fundraising it still cost each person approximately $1,500. The team was captained by Russell Rogers from Western District. Tony Duffy and AJ Casey were the managers. The tour was the brainchild of Casey and proved a very successful one, winning two and drawing two of its first five matches and then finished the tour with an outright win over a strong Auckland side. Member of the touring team, Abul Rizki recalls the trip.
6: We landed at Christchurch, and the first game was just south of that in Ashburton. Uh, then we played in Christchurch. Then we drove up to Wellington and played against played against Wellington at the Basin Reserve. Then we went north up to Fongaray and played against Northland, and then we went back south to Auckland and played against Auckland, and we flew out of Auckland back home. Oh, the fondest memory of the trip, uh, and it's an odd one, is, is probably – um, when we won our game against against Auckland. So that was the last game we had. We played at Eden Park against, against Auckland. Uh, and the Auckland side had Jeff Crow, uh, who was playing test cricket for uh, New Zealand, Mark Greatbatch, who hadn't made his debut, but made his debut the year after, uh, John Braceville, who was already in the test side, and Peter Webb, who was the New Zealand keeper at the time. They had a good side and they had three or four quicks and a guy called Sean Tracy, I remember. He was super quick, and I opened the batting on the first day. And I must say, the first couple of overs, I don't think I saw many. <laughs> and uh, oh, he eventually got me, um, got me in the uh, in the unfortunate space um, that blokes have. Oh, I have to say, I
1: can't remember being in so much pain. There was a lot of effort went into that tour in regards to fundraising, because I think around about $45,000 for it to go ahead. Yeah, that's
6: right. We did a huge
1: amount of fundraising, you know, Lamington drives, uh, selling
6: um, uh, lottery tickets, all that sort of stuff. But even after all of that, everyone still had to chip in a fair amount to, for the trip, every player, which was fair enough. Um, you know, it was, a, it was a huge privilege to be on it. The ACT uh, Cricket's first uh, overseas tour, playing against first-class sides in New Zealand, that was just a just the opportunity of a lifetime the thing that really edged up the excitement back in canberra was the canberra times decided to send their cricket reporter on the tour so we had uh, a cricket journalist with us throughout the whole tour reporting every day everything that happened back back in canberra right. jeff thompson that's true right. it was jeff with a g and yes. he was the cricket he was the cricket reporter he he didn't play he was he was a full-time reporter on paid assignment they were getting
1: um, the back page probably half of the back page almost every day, was on the cricket tour. The, I believe one of the matches where it was almost snowing or it had snowed there.
6: Oh, that, that was our second
1: match against Canterbury at Christchurch. So we played at Hagley
6: Park. And I must say that the day we went walked out, it was bitterly cold. The pitch was just the most verdant green you've ever seen and it looked like someone had just run the mower over a little part of the oval and said that's the pitch mate go for it and it was quick so we're playing on a day where I remember I went out to bat and I had a singlet on a heavy uh, full sleeve t-shirt a half sleeve
1: jumper and then a
6: full sleeve jumper <laughs> and my helmet and I was freezing
1: any really any particular funny stories from the tour that come to mind
6: Oh, look, we, we when we finished the game against, sorry, against Canterbury and we'd won and and we were just amazed because we we're playing against, you know, a first class side for the first time. It had three or four test cricketers in it. We thought we had no chance. And to win that game was just amazing. And as we won the game, we had we were, I think we are eight or nine wickets down and Murray Radcliffe was the next or the last batsman to come in and he was shitting himself. But as soon as we won, Murray walked out onto the ground and said, and the best of the
1: batting was yet to come. <laughs> <laughs> In typical Murray fashion. Did you find that a Abul that it helped your cricket for the remainder of the season? Oh, enormously,
6: enormously. It, it, it gave you so much confidence. You know, you're, you're up to the level and coming back to Canberra, you felt, well, geez, I'm too good for this, which was a bit stupid to think that way. But but it did give you that sort of confidence because we went to New Zealand thinking, hey, we're playing against uh, three first-class sides in – four, really, in, in New Zealand, and these people, each side is full of test cricketers, and we're just a bunch of blokes from Canberra.
1: So, you know, it was pretty intimidating. The bull was pretty good. I think out of the six matches, you only lost one. That's right, and that was the first one day
6: at, at Ashburton. So we won the one against Canterbury. That was just just extraordinary. Winning that one, um, uh, the Canterbury side at the time was coached by Dale Hadley, so you know that that was a big name in those days to be to be around. We drew against um, Wellington at the Wellington at the Basin Reserve, um, and that was mainly because of a century by Peter Woods. He just grounded out. Woodsy, he juicy batted well that day, yeah. and then we won against Auckland, against a, a team just chock a block full of Test cricketers. Just amazing. And I will tell you what, they they were they were cross when they lost. Uh, if sometime later that year, I think it was later that year, uh, New Zealand was touring Australia, and when they came to Canberra, all the Auckland players were particularly keen to play. They wanted they wanted revenge. <laughs>
1: Well, I can tell you the New Zealand, that when they came, they won the first two matches and the third game was reduced with rain. So, yes, they might have saved revenge on you, Mob. They did, they did. I, I,
6: I, you know, uh, uh, that New Zealand side was a pretty good side uh, that we played against and uh, wasn't surprising they got us. Um, gee, they had some good players.
1: Later in 1982-83 season, ACT played a one-day game against Sri Lanka, which the visitors won easily. And in March, ACT played a three-day game against New Zealand's Second Eleven, with the visitors winning by five wickets. Wayne Campbell made 97 ACT's first innings. It completed nine matches against five countries in three years. The value of these matches was immense, not only giving pleasure and the experience for players, but the incentive for young players in the association to strive for higher honours. It also added to the status of ACT cricket in the eyes of the States and the Australian Cricket Board. The Tui's Cup matches that commenced in 1977 continued to be played between Goulburn and ACT. In 1981, Tui's had a portable wicket that was used for the venues, who did not have cricket pitches. The aluminium wicket could be rolled out on the outfield. In 1982, the wicket was used at Bruce Stadium in Canberra for the first official cricket match played under lights in Canberra. The response was huge, with 8,000 turning out the watch the likes of Tony Gregg and Lenny Pascoe play for the ACT. ACT took out the Australian Country Cricket Championships for the first time in 1986-87, held in Dubbo, under the captaincy of Greg Irvine, when it won all five matches Three players, Irvine, 310 runs and 8 wickets, John Bull, 216 runs and 7 wickets, and Graham Bush, 10 wickets, were selected in the Australian countryside with Irvine captain and Bull vice-captain. ACT's next title was the 1994 championships held in Canberra under the captaincy of Peter Solway. ACT won all five games in a high-scoring set of matches with scores of 367 versus New South Wales, four for 375 versus Victoria, 287 versus South Australia, and eight for 266 against Queensland. An eight-wicket victory over Western Australia wrapped up the title. Paul Evans was named Player of the Championship with 419 runs at 69.8. He was also chosen in the Australian countryside that played New South Wales, where he made 34 in the country total of 204. Women's cricket in the 80s was starting to get national exposure and recognition for ACT cricketers. There was, by the end of the decade, eight teams in the ACT women's competition and official umpires had been rostered for all matches. I spoke with former Australian representative and ACT Cricket Hall of Fame inductee, Glenda Hall, about all the developments. Glenda, the ACT playing in the Australian National Championships in 1981 was a great boost. What were some of the other things that were assisting the standard of play at the time?
7: Yeah, well, we were very fortunate to have a a number of coaching visits. Former Australian players came to Canberra to to assist us. So players like Sharon Tredray, Rayleigh Thompson uh, and Karen Price, a big win for us. Um, We were also invited to participate in the New South Wales Country Championships, which we did on a number of occasions. Uh, There was a creation of the John Knight Memorial Shield competition, which was played in Canberra on the Australia Day long weekends, uh, which attracted teams from Sydney, Wagga, Orange, Newcastle and Tasmania. That went for quite a number of years and was very successful. And uh, can I say that I particularly enjoyed those competitions. Whenever I played, I always did well in those. And we were also invited to send an under nineteen team to play an interstate series in Sydney too. That in Sydney that uh, developed our young talent as well.
1: Glenda, um, obviously, there was a very sad day for ACT cricket in December um, nineteen
7: eighty one. Yeah, um, back in those days, we um, were, we had a national uh, tournament that was in Melbourne. Um, And we all drove down, uh, and unfortunately, our vice-captain, Sarah Hodgson, was killed in a car accident on the 18th of December, 1981, while travelling to the championships. She was a very popular member of our team, um, also in the car with her was her father, who I believe was also killed, and also our coach and Sarah's uh, partner, Murray Stokes. Murray survived the accident and was in hospital for about a week, I think, and then uh, ended up turning up to the championships just to support us. We we did decide to continue on with the championships despite being, um, you know, really devastated by the accident. But, uh, yeah, very sad day for uh, the Hodgson. Family and also um, ACT Women's Cricket as well.
1: And then um, over the next few years, the ACT players started to be recognised.
7: Things started to pick up quite a bit after that. Um, so in 1983, we held uh, the ch- championships were held in Brisbane, um, and there were three players that were named in the Australian train-on squad, including myself, Kathy Smith, and Julie Stone. Uh, I was also named player of the uh, championship uh, for that particular uh, tournament. Um, And I was also selected for the Australian under-25 team that toured New Zealand. The following year, um, the championships were in Sydney and I became the first ACT cricketer to be selected to play for Australia for a six-week tour of India in which I played two tests and two one-day internationals. Um, And from there, we had quite a few. So then in 1985, ACT Women's Cricket Association hosted a match at Marnica Oval uh, between the visiting um, England women's team and the Australian Women's Cricket Council Presidents Eleven. Seven local players were selected uh, to play in the Pre- President's Eleven, including uh, myself, Diane Cook, Kathy Smith, Julie Stone, and with Lynn O'Meara and Bromwyn Calver as 12th and 13th. The, the game surprisingly created a lot of interest among the ACT public like it never had before, so that was uh, pretty amazing. Um, then later that year, the ACT. Uh, Women's Cricket Association hosted the inaugural Australian Under-18 Championships in December of that year. Um, it also had the perfect ending when the ACT lost narrowly in the final to Victoria. In 1987, Lynn Cook uh, was selected for a one-day international series in Australia against New Zealand. Uh, following the 1988 National Championships, where ACT came fourth, two ACT players were selected in the Australian team to play in New Zealand, Jodie Davison and myself. Kathy Bryant, Broman Calver, and Karen Hitchcock were named in the Australian under-21 development squad as well. And realistically, it didn't take all that long to... To get all the recognition too, given that uh, in 1978, 79 we were invited to the championships on an invitational basis. Then the following following year there wasn't a competition, and then, um, as you said, 1980, 81 I think was our first time as official as an official team in the national championships. So, but we've even had more since then as well. So we were fortunate that Christine Matthews, who had originally played for Victoria. Uh, moved to New South Wales. But because New South Wales already had a wicketkeeper, Christine Matthews found herself without a team to play in and she was the current Australian wicketkeeper at the time too. So she came down and played in uh, the ACT, played for Gin and and came down pretty much every weekend to play, which was a big effort on her part. And she joined the ACT team for the 1990 National Championships in Brisbane which was actually good for her because um, she and Broman Calvert were both selected in the Australian squad after that particular tournament. They toured New Zealand. In the same season, the inaugural Manuka Cup Challenge was established with ACT Under-21s uh, versus New South Wales 21s as part of the ACT Chief Minister's Carnival of Cricket as well. Uh, The Chief Minister's Trophy was also introduced and awarded to the most promising ACT female cricketer, which was sponsored by Qantas. That included a return trip to England, plus spending money uh, to go along with that. Uh, Bronwyn Calver was the inaugural winner in 1990, and Bronwyn made her one-day international debut for Australia against New Zealand in Hobart in 1991. So, in January 1991, um, there was a touring India Indian women's cricket team, and um, the ACT were lucky enough to play their first international against the touring um, Indian women's team at Manuka Oval. ACT. Defeated India by one run on the last ball of the match. Um, I was thrilled to be the captain and the person who hit the winning runs for the day, oh may good. I say, and and was also named Player of the Match. So that was a that was a big thrill for us.
1: That's a good day at the office.
7: Then the following year, the championships uh, in 1992 were held in Orange, and we had our best ever finish. In the championships where we came third, which was pretty impressive. From that uh, particular championship, Kim Fazakali, who used to play for Tasmania, uh, was selected to play in the Australian side against New Zealand. And then in the first five-day test match against England, And also, Bronwyn Cowell was named player of the series and selected in the Australian side following the 1994 championships in Perth.
1: Glenda, what are your memories of your um, first match for Australia? I think you were on the Indian tour. You played a couple of test matches and won days.
7: Oh, the tour. It was, uh, yeah, it was a real eye-opener for me because I was the only ACT player in the team. I was, got a bit homesick. I remember that. Uh, it was a long tour of six weeks, which is probably one of the yeah. longest that, um, you know, women's teams had, had had in the modern era. Yeah, it was really, really tough times. We, we played on a lot of good grounds and that was wonderful and we were well received by the Indian public, but our accommodation was pretty ordinary. We're not quite, we weren't <laughs> quite at the stage where they are nowadays, where, where they, get treated like gods. We had to pay for ourselves to go over there. And the Indian Women's Cricket Association organized our accommodation for us. And can I say that it wasn't the best. Was it
1: an example of some of the things with Uh, the accommodation?
7: At one place, I think it was in Bombay, as it was called at the time, uh, we had to stay at the stadium itself, so underneath the, the stadium there there were rooms and they weren't particularly uh, luxurious, may we say. Uh, I remember I remember sleeping in one place, it might have been Jaipur, I think, and the beds that we had were like massage tables that were so thin, uh, not very comfortable. Uh, and there was one place where there were actually animals in the rooms and we asked to be be moved from there which which they um, obliged oh, but, dear. Yeah. so things weren't weren't all that luxurious <laughs> for us but you know when when times are tough the team sticks together which was a, which was a good thing
1: was there a cat presentation in in that uh, time for you Glenda, or was it just uh, you got a named and you just Picked up your cap. Yeah,
7: that was before cap presentations, and in fact, um, in those days, we didn't even really have a a baggy green. It wasn't a proper baggy green that we were given. We basically were given a green cap, and you had to sew your own. You had to sew your own uh, badge on the front of it to make an Australian <laughs> cap. How yeah, so have not, not, not quite like it is these days. <laughs> Although, having said that, I have received a an original uh, baggy green since then, which is now framed on my wall. Yeah, they were good memories. It was a long time ago, and I think I think unfortunately for me, because I don't have anyone to relive them with, because you know, um, you know, no one else from ACT was in the team. I do tend to for, to forget, you know, all about it. They were very good days, tough times, but um, you know, it's always a, a great pleasure to represent your country.
1: Glenda, family, your mother and father had such a strong, rich history. With ACT Women's Cricket.
7: Mum and Dad um, had supported me all all through from uh, when I first started playing. For a while, Mum and Dad were pretty much running the ACT Women's Cricket Association. Mum was the secretary from 1983 through to 1992. She was awarded an Order of Australia medal. Uh, for services to women's cricket. Um, She was also a delegate to the Australian Women's Cricket Council as well and and played a large part in running a lot of the championships that were held in Canberra as well. And in the background, Dad was uh, always coaching my local team of Western Districts. He played a big part in doing a lot of the organising of of the uh, tournaments around the place. He also went to New Zealand in 1992 and scored for the Australian team uh, while they were playing New Zealand well recognised in um, the Australian women's cricket scenes as well as ACT too. So they are a big part um, and it's always good to have support from your family.
1: The first ever Women's One Day International came to Manuka Oval on December the 7th 1988 when Australia played New Zealand in Match 10 of the Bicentennial World Cup tournament being played across Australia. Australia after being sent in made 9 for 167, off its 60 over allotment, with Denise Annette's top scoring with 41. In reply, New Zealand fell 46 runs short at 8 for 121, with Australia executing four run outs in a brilliant fielding display. Sharon Treadray took 3 for 20. World Cup cricket returned to Canberra in March 1992, when South Africa played Zimbabwe. The Proteas, captained by Kepler Vessels, won by seven wickets, with Vessels top scoring with 70. Zimbabwe were sent in to bat and bowled out for 163. Peter Kirsten was man of the match with three wickets and an unbeaten 62, as the South Africans won comfortably.
0: Gold in. Gold in. So that's the end of the argument, and uh, the 49th over, Alan Donald gets his first wicket to score this over now stands at 9.3 overs one made and one for 26 and that's a good performance by South Africa they put Zimbabwe into bat they pulled the match for 164 in the 49th over let's see if Peter Kirsten can win this one for South Africa or this delivery he certainly can
8: they'll turn for the second and whether it's one needed or two needed that's victory by seven wickets for South Africa a great win 164
1: Cricket coaching in the ACT was starting to evolve in the 80s and to explain more about its progress, I caught up with current ACT Meteor's head coach, John O'Dean, who reflected on a significant era of coaching. The importance of coaching and upskilling of coaches really started to kick in during the 80s, John O. Yeah, it did. I guess in, in May around 1984, um, Hatch, or Ray Hatch, as we call him,
9: succeeded Kerry Owen as the regional director of coaching He plays a significant role in in really upskilling and qualifying um, our coaches in the region. And he ran eight coaching courses in that that first season. By about 1985, coaches or coaching courses run by by Hatchie had produced about 16 level two qualified coaches. And by the early 90s, um, I think it was, they had around 195 level one coaches. And 19 at level two. Uh, you know they, they require a level of coach at representative sides. That level, that level of coach, that level two coach. Four coaches at that the highest level being the, the level three accreditation.
1: And John, around about the same time, there was also quite a lot of the overseas players and coaches who were starting to come into Canberra cricket. Yeah, so
9: brushing up on my history, I think it was two significant coaches in in this era that came to Canberra. Uh, one was a South African-born um, bloke by the name of John Abraham's. Um, he was the vice captain of Lancashire at the, at the time and he was engaged by a professional at Western Creek. I think he also had a big impact on, on the coaching and, and played with AC teams here in, in Canberra. I guess the following year, uh, Mike Watkinson was another a Lancashire cricketer that came in into Canberra and he, along with with, with John, conducted heaps of school coaching programs across Canberra. You know, when, when John was unable to return to Canberra that year later, he was then replaced by... A fellow by the name of Neil Fairbrother, um, who was playing for East
1: Canberra at the time. That's that's brushing up on my history, mate. Yeah. very good and I'm very impressed, John O. Now the PM Eleven games, which were so popular and made that return in the eighties, but they also had another significant benefit.
9: Yeah, I guess the the association it certainly did benefit from the directive and to have kind of money gained from these matches. To improving coaching and, and for juniors and seniors, with that financial injection, injection from the return of that that PM's match, association was was able to appoint uh, in July. I think it was July 1986. Uh, Richard Dunn, in a part-time role, I uh, think he worked 10 hours a week, operating out of an indoor centre. He played 23 matches for the ACT. He actually played 12 short matches as well for, for New South Wales which is pretty good and he was a level two coach uh, and a year later had completed his requirements to become a level level three accredited coach again being that the highest level of accreditation in Australian cricket yeah so Don after after three years uh, took up a position with cricket well as Australian institute of sport actually um, and sports cricket academy in, in Adelaide and Hatchy Ray hatch at the time it was it was still New South Wales CA regional director of coaching he actually got his level three accreditation in 1988. But in September 1990, um, a Canberra legend, Daryl McDonald, was appointed coaching and development manager after after John Abrahams. And he was initially offered the role, or, or Daryl McDonald had re- represented and captain ACT, many sides over that kind of previous five years. And he was also a Level 2 coach and had a degree in sports administration. He's a great man and he's done a lot for, for Canberra. The association also appointed a senior coach in, in it was October 19... 19- 91 to organise and, and run 20 sessions. The man was appointed was it was Eugene Nix. Who had played 63 representative matches between 1980 and 1990. With a spot in the Australian country team in 1990 against Sri Lanka, uh, which would have been an awesome experience. To complete, you know, the revitalised coaching structure. He was was Adam Wood. He was appointed uh, schools promotions officer in nineteen eighty nine. for that next season in nineteen ninety one. Chris Hume was was an appointed junior development manager. Yeah, first for first of one season, I think it was. Um, but then as a full time officer of the association, uh, following that, it's
1: it actually really set it up for what we got today. You know, is it bigger and better? So um, yeah, we thank you for that recap, mate, and uh, good luck with um the ongoing work you're doing as the uh, ACT Meteors head coach.
9: Yeah, thanks Robbie, it was nice to get an opportunity to brush up on my uh, Canberra coaching history. Look forward to hearing more and um, it's just it's great to see, I guess, how, how coaching especially is developed, uh, not only in Canberra, but across Australia and, and the world. In
1: 1985, the ACT Cricket Association adopted a strategic development plan, which set out the association's aim to become an independent organisation alongside the State Associations in the Australian Cricket Scene, specifically to seek 1. Membership, at first as an observer leading to voting status of the Australian Cricket Board, 2. Participation in national competitions as an independent territory, and 3. Conduct matches in Canberra of the highest level. Two events in 1984 gave great impetus towards the achievement of these aims and to the development of cricket in Canberra and Queanbeyan. The first was the creation of the position of development officer, which in 1987 grew into the position of executive director. The other was the return of the second series of Prime Minister's 11 matches. In October 1984, the first Sheffield Shield game was played at Manuka Roble between New South Wales and Western Australia. The Development Officer position was the first full-time paid position of the association since the association was established 62 years earlier. Greg Lord was appointed in July 1984 at a salary of $20,000. He had been Secretary of the Association in 1970-1974 and Chairman of the Executive Committee 1983-84. Lord had been both Captain and President of East Canberra. His office was a small cubicle in one corner of the indoor centre and thus becoming the very first administrative headquarters of the association. At the time of Lord's appointment, the association was directly responsible for five grades of district cricket, the twilight competition, the indoor competition and a junior competition with nearly 300 teams. It was also responsible for interstate matches at senior and junior level, coaching for all age groups. Lord had also become responsible for organising matches played by visiting international teams. In June 1988, John Holland Constructions, in an aspect of sponsorship, provided a portable office and then later another portable office at the rear of the Bradman Pavilion at Marnica Oval. Tony Duffy had begun a six year stint as president of the association in 1977, before Justice John Gallup commenced in 1983-84. This was the start of a remarkable 27 years as president of the association. There will be more about the judge in the next episode. Monica Oval has two historical structures that are features of the ground. As Matt Elkins, executive branch manager of Venues Canberra explains, he starts with the scoreboard and how it arrived.
8: The scoreboard is originally the scoreboard from the MCG. It was built in the early 1900s, somewhere around 1901. It, in its first life, it saw a lot of history. It, it would have seen many, many Boxing Day tests, would have seen plenty of VFL Grand Finals. The 1956 Olympics, it told you, it showed you, and it recorded the history that that was. But as time passes, the MCG... Uh, Moved towards uh, towards an electronic scoreboard, and, and in 1982, that uh, that happened. The scoreboard came down uh, with a, a little bit of a, a bang and a clatter, and there was a bit of uh, there, there was a bit of damage to the, the side walls and uh, and the frame. But the important part, the historic part, the part that has recorded and continues to record some of the most important sporting uh, history, was kept. And not only that part that that sits on the facade, but the, the the mechanics, the the pretty unique mechanics of the scoreboard, the the bike chain mechanics, um, were kept. The the MCC, what what it, what is, and and I know through through close association with um, the ACT cricket that it uh, jumped onto the Hume Highway and headed towards Monica Oval, was built. In, uh, and, and ready to go and erected for 1983. It was a really uh an important part of uh, of turning probably one of those landmarks. We've had a few over time, uh, and but it was that first landmark. Said Marnock Oval was was a cricket ground and a cricket ground of note.
1: So Matt, what was the um, the reason behind the naming of it, the Jack Fingleton scoreboard?
8: Yeah, it's a it's a, it's a really great t- story, and a, and a, Jack Fingleton was uh, an international cricketer of note. He uh, he played eighteen uh, Test matches for Australia. Um, he also, while he started his cricketing career in uh, in New South Wales in in Waverley, he um, apart from being a great cricketer, was also a great journalist. That journalism brought him to Canberra. Uh, as part of the uh, the press gallery. He spent quite a bit of time in the ACT and quite a bit of time in Canberra. He was the president of the ACT Cricket Association, had really close ties on the hill, was really influential in a lot of the birth of the connection between uh, uh, cricket and the parliament, was also a great advocate of uh, getting cricket and important cricket played at Marnica Oval. So when the time comes, for the uh, the board to be installed at Manuka Oval, it made not just sense, but it tied and really resonated to call it the Jack Fingleton School Board, and that and that's the name, and that's and that's where it resides
1: today. Yeah, that's fantastic, isn't it? And, it, and it was a lovely donation too from the Melbourne Cricket Club. So now, Matt, another. Wonderful part of the Manuka Oval is the cottage.
8: Yeah, the uh, the the caretakers or the curators cottage, and it and it sits at the the northern end of the ground. The cottage was built in 1937, and and it, um, the curators cottage was built to house the caretaker and the curator of the Manuka Oval. The the cottage it was a it was a it's a really great representation of what was. What was happening in the in the capital at the time? It's a two-storey brick residence. You can see the history of uh, of Canberra sitting in that cottage. But it's not it's not just it's not just history. Right up until um, in the uh, the early 2000s, the curator not not our current curator, but the curator before Brad Van Dam lived with his family. On site at Manuka Oval, and then curators prior to that had uh, had also lived in the the cottage through from the the 1960s. I think Jim Thompson lived at uh, lived in the cottage, and then um, Ron Winter, and uh, and then even his son um, Richard. It was you know it's a great piece of um, history for the oval, but it's a great. It's a great tie back to what a growing city meant and and what it needed. And it also, and, you know, I've been lucky enough to chat to guys like um, Richard Winter over the time who talked about being overnight as they were preparing for really important matches and the opportunity and running out to dive and make sure covers were were safe and and likewise with Brad uh, talking about and I don't know if if Monica may have one of the the strangest little microclimates but uh when weather and rain came through just before a match day, and, and they were able to, as the curator, race out the front door and, and dive on the on the covers to make sure that the wicket was uh, wicket was uh, safe and protected. And and it's a uh, it's a romantic notion to to think the curator diving on their wicket to to make sure it's safe for first day play. Um, uh, I can tell you, uh, having seen some of our curators after it. Uh, the romance is gone when they're drenched uh, after Mills and Wilbur. An important part of, of the ground, an important part of Canberra.
1: Western District was initially formed as the Connon Cricket Club. The side quickly took on the name as Western District for their initial season in the newly reconstructed ACT Cricket Association in 1969-70. The side was renamed Western District University of Canberra from 2004-05 to 2018-19 after an agreement was reached with the University of Canberra sports union. The side reverted to the name Western District following the lapse of the agreement. To speak more about the club, I caught up with life member Mick Brady. So where was that first home ground base in the early days for Wes and what were some of the biggest challenges for the club? The
4: the beauty of... uh the club being set up was, um, it could be its own identity. So it it wasn't, uh, even though some of the clubs um, may have amalgamated, it it actually West became its own club. So with that, but then what emerges from that is you've got to start from scratch. Home ground initially was at uh, at O'Connor Oval there. It also had Aranda as its lower grade ground as well. It slowly sort of became part of Belconnen or but slowly became part of it. The, the club was fortunate, and it was good administration, which is having some residential requirements for people. So, if you if you were to play with a club, you had to with, play within that district. So, you know, that probably helped form the club. With any sort of organisation. Uh, that sort of comes together. There always needs to be, you know, some central figures that uh, that are instrumental in that. Uh, Sid Smith was probably uh, one of the big names. He'd been playing at Northbourne since 1960. So for Sid to sort of uh, pick up everything and decide he was going to play in the uh, the district that he uh, lived in was probably quite important for the club. So, you know, that's probably where it started. I think uh, its early years were pretty challenging playing capability, but also its uh, financial capacity as well. And I, and I think uh, two of the first three seasons, um, unfortunately first grade, uh, uh, were propping up the rest of the table. But, you know, uh, humble beginnings. But it, what it meant was that the club could sort of really form its own identity out of those years.
1: And Mick, but the club certainly, um, it certainly has been very successful. I, a bit, I had a good look through the amount of premierships I think, or titles. It, it's something like... 76 titles in the male and the female uh, titles sit at 25. So over 100. And the, the female cricket has certainly been a, a huge part of Western districts and they hate to had a period of success or at one stage where they won 14 out of 15 premierships.
4: A real challenge for them in those early years as you can imagine, those young females who were coming through and, and looking to play cricket was, uh, was quite important. The, the group that uh, eventually sort of housed itself at, um, at West, started off at Ginandera for a season. And look, on the back of the extraordinary amount of work done by the Hall family, Brian and Margaret, parents of Glenda, and and Brian was a real driver within the club and uh, forged, forged a path for those uh, young females to play. And Margaret was uh, working behind the scenes and did a lot of work at the association level. But, uh, all of that work that, uh, allowed... Glenda to play her cricket and Glenda went on to represent
1: Australia and in- everyone's contributed to make West such a successful club. That's been they've yeah. been able to adapt to whatever trends have been going in the game.
4: So even though those early years were uh, were pretty challenging um you know I, I probably the uh, the turnaround came in about 74 75 when Dean Moore uh, joined the club from came across from and with Dean you know there was uh, there was a whole host of other really talented players who sort of came and played at the club uh, in in the in the late 70s you know people who had played uh, Sydney grade cricket, um, people like Russell Rogers and Cole Rowe, someone like Tony Irvine who'd sort of played first uh, grade cricket uh, uh, over in Perth. You know, you get someone like Dean coming across at that time. It was actually quite important because it was all these young junior players who were coming through the district at the time. Just And when you've got some talented, uh, hard-nosed first first grade cricketers in your club as well it uh, it gives it a lot of credibility help too that a lot of those young people were growing up together going through the education system together and and playing cricket together as well but what also supported that uh, an alliance with the uh, western district rugby union club Encourage West cricket to sort of be uh, part of the fold, and we we're able to sort of do a whole rate of, of fundraising activities there. That, uh, as well as socialising in a, in a very stable environment, Ashley Heddle was uh, was really instrumental in um, building on the work of Brian and Margaret Hall. And so Ashley sort of spent a lot to, a long time as the uh, vice president for the women's in the club as well. And he was he was a Really important link between um, the halls and and uh, and the players. In the late 70s, they had close to 20 junior teams, and you know that that can only come from a lot of people putting in. And um, you know, from the from 1979 onwards, uh, Eddie Wheeler was uh, was convener or vice president of the juniors. for for 17 years and and that's an extraordinary sort of contribution to make, you know, he he would have seen a lot of uh, juniors cycle through in that time and then, you know, we had uh, an interesting period where Everett Primary sort of came into the fold as well where Johnny Rogers was part of that and um, but... You know what it means is it it takes a uh, community to build a person i think generally and and you're always needing those sources of input
1: the tugmanong valley cricket club was created following the amalgamation of south woden and woden clubs taking advantage of the growth areas in the south of canberra the woden club had been formed in 1965 while south woden was formed in 1969 To find out more about the club, I spoke with current opening batsman in first grade, Alex Flores. Alex, it has a great history, uh, cricket in the Tuggerdong Valley, and one that goes back 100 years.
3: We certainly do have an interesting history, Robbie. Thanks for the introduction. Cricket commenced in the Valley back in 1921. Uh, The original cricket concrete pitch is still in the paddock at the historical Tuggerdong homestead at Lanyon. Uh, It's obviously a bit worn out since then. In 1976, uh, Tuggeranong fielded our first junior sides and the senior club was established and joined the ACT competition in 1984 and the women's competition from the 1985-86 season. In under 40 years of senior cricket, there has been plenty of success and plenty
1: of titles, uh, silverware, and players who've gone on to bigger and better things. It's, it's a great record for a club that's not that old.
3: Yeah, it certainly is. We've won 11 club championships, which is uh, outstanding. We've also had 11 first-grade premierships and numerous women's uh, and lower-grade premierships. TVCC first-grade, we also won the inaugural Conicum and Ulta Cup in 2018-19 season, uh, which which, uh, we flew to Adelaide and joined the best sides from around Australia for three days for the national T20 competition. Yeah, we've also had a lot of representative players throughout our history. to name a few, we've had Michael Bevan, who uh, very well known name, who joined TVCC in the 87-88 season and made an instant impact, but in the 88-89 season, scored 522 runs at an amazing 104.4, which is just unheard of. He was actually a fast, medium bowler, but was injured, which convinced him to concentrate on batting, which I think worked out quite well for him. Yeah, he then went on to play for South Australia New South Wales, and then moved into the Australian side. Uh, Jason Berendorf, who moved over to Western Australia and played in the Australian team. Jason Flores, who moved to Queensland. Dan Burgess, Samoa. Aaron Osborne, ACT Meteors and Australian team. Peter Bowler, Tasmania uh, and County Cricket in England. Tom Thornton went to South Australia. Jessica Moyes to, to Western Australia. We had William Flores, ACT and Australian Indoor Cricketer. Benji Flores, Queensland and Australian Indoor Cricketer. Timmy Flores and Matt Flores, Australian Indoor Cricketers. And we've also had numerous numbers uh, members of TVCC represent the ACT. So we've had Shane DeVoy, Greg Lemin, Paul names Tom Van Tempest, Marie Casey, Kirsten Burroughs, Catherine Chippendale and Chris Britt, just to name a few.
1: The club's also had a, um, a good history of some good overseas players come along as well.
3: Really good to see that we get people from overseas come and join our team. It's great for the young kids to see, you know, different Perspective on how other people play the game, um, but we've hosted numerous overseas players. So we've had Peter Bowler, Charlie Morris from England, Killer Parler from PNG, Johnny White Oak and Gareth Wade from England as well. Yeah, and one of the
1: things, Alex, I suppose, at the home ground now is this magnificent new facility
3: that was built back in 2014. Yeah, it certainly is. I've played for the club um, since I can remember. So being able to come through the junior ranks and see what they've provided is fantastic. But I think uh, May 8th, 2014, when the new Cricket pavilion and new Oval was opened, um, it was a very long-awaited premises um, by all cricket lovers down in Um And, you know, it wouldn't have been possible without the vision, planning and hard work of club presidents Phil Heaney, Bob Waite and John Kidd. They lobbied and raised enough funding to construct the facility, which was a very long 10-year process, but the facility has come become one of the best in the Canberra region with uh, Australian Championships, ACT Meteors and Australia's second 11 games being regular features down at the Valley.
1: Now, like most clubs, um, Alex, there's plenty of volunteers, some great characters and supporters. You might just like to name a few of those.
3: Certainly would. Thank you, Robbie. So we've had a lot of wonderful cricket fans who've made um, TVCC their own, but the best of the two wonderful ladies of Celine uh, Hampson and Nola Russell. They're cricket mad and the most loved love supporters down in the valley. So Celine and Nola used to travel to Sydney to watch cricket, but decided there was some good cricket played in Canberra. So packed their thermos, chairs, hats, <laughs> some sunscreen, and they came down to Tuggerong to watch a game. That was in 1996, and they continue to be regular features at first grade games 26 years later, which is outstanding. KVCC, it's such a family club and you'll yeah. find that past players bring their children down to play in the junior grades and hope one day that they'll be able to play with them in grade cricket. And we've got a lot of families down at the club, such as the Floristers, <laughs> which is me and my cousins and uncle and dad, the Kellers, the kids, the Mulcasters, the Dunns, the Duvoys, the Casey's, the Reynolds, the Osbournes, and there's so many more at the club, which is fantastic. You've got a magnificent volunteer base that serve you guys so well. Cricket wouldn't be able to happen without our volunteers. And we've had, just to name a few, we've got Bruce Chawartha, who was, uh, for 29 years, so from 88 to 2017, ran the junior cricket for our club as either vice president or president, which is outstanding. Uh, The current TVCC president, Billy Flores. All the committee members who give up their valuable time throughout the year to ensure the club functions. For all who want to come and play, we have Doris and Mark Seaman, who score in our lower grades. Christine and Peter Reynolds, who used to make us our wonderful lasagna lunches before COVID (laughs) hit. (laughs) Uh, Numerous players who provided their services, electrical carpeting, anything we need. We've always got someone at the club that's willing to help out. Pina Kidd, who's our first grade scorer and a committee member, also the pavilion manager. And Nathan Lumley, who assists juniors as well as pavilion manager in training and so many more. A couple of real standout
1: stats that that come to mind just over those few years. You might just get your name a few of those, please, Alex.
3: 2017-18. Uh, My brother, Jake Flores, hit 230 not out in second grade. Just a year later, Timmy Flores, my cousin, hit 219 not out. That was in a one-day game. The best bowling for the club was John Kidd in 1987-88, who took nine for 42 off 21 overs. Outstanding. And the most wickets in a season was current first grade um, player Shane DeVoy in 2018-19, who took 62 wickets for the season.
1: Well, that completes episode four of the Glory Days podcast series that looks back on the first 100 years of cricket in the ACT. Next episode, we look at the period between 1995 and 2005, which features the rise and fall of the Canberra Comets, the emergence of one of Australia's greatest ever wicketkeeper batters, and a triple ton in women's cricket. Thanks for listening, and it's bye for now, and we look forward to catching you next time on episode five, of this Glory Days podcast series.